Let me open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for your son, Jesus, um, for whom we have gathered here this morning to, um, to behold, um, to, to witness his beauty and worth, and um, I pray that in doing so, we would uh, just have our affections stirred, that we would have joy, and that we would have peace and hope and all of the things that are found in Christ. I pray that you would, through the work of your Spirit, guide my words. I pray that you would grant us understanding eyes to see, ears to hear, and most importantly, hearts to respond to what it is you are going to reveal in your word. And God, I, um, I thank you for the privilege of being here with these women on this day, on this, uh, on this, at this time that we are living in, and um, what a privilege it is to carry the name of Jesus um, right now where we are. And we just love you so very much. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, quite a few years ago now, I was pregnant with my oldest, who's now 12. My mom and I ate lunch at Maggiano's. It's the Italian restaurant. I'm sure many of you have been there. I love Maggiano's. I just love food in general, but I do love, I love Maggiano's. I was very much looking forward to the bread service, complete with the little plate of olive oil with the salt and pepper, and I always get balsamic vinegar to put in there as well. And so I just, you know, when you kind of start thinking about something and you crave something and you're ready for something. So we sit down, and after an extended time of waiting for the bread to come, it did not come. Now, a normal, reasonable person would have simply stopped the server and asked about the bread and the olive oil. But because I was both pregnant and very hungry, I started crying. Like, pretty hard. Because I really really wanted that bread. I had been looking forward to that bread. And um, I do blame the pregnancy hormones. Listen, my glasses and my finger, okay. Um, but if I'm being really honest, and my mother would certainly attest to this, crying over bread is very on brand for me. Like, this is not something that's completely outside of what April Swears would, would do. Um, I, I love bread. I love bread so much. And um, so it should come as no surprise to you that John 6, where Jesus is identified as the bread of life, is one of my all-time favorite passages. It is going to be a high-carb morning, all right? Um, I am a sucker for a good food metaphor. The Bible is full of them, and this is one of the finest in all of Scripture. So it's going to be good. Before we get to John chapter 6 and the bread, we are going to walk through John chapter 5. It is so good as well. So let's go ahead. If you haven't already turned to John chapter 5, 
turn there. All right, so today we have two signs that we're going to look at. So another sign. And if you have your listening guide here um, at the top, you'll kind of see the, the flow or the structure of John chapter 5. Now, remember in the book of John, the works of Jesus aren't called miracles. They are called signs. And the reason they're called signs is because John wants to emphasize the fact that they point to something beyond the actual event. Um, they are, there's a significance more than just what's happened on the surface, which is why some of the signs in John are connected with very lengthy discourse or speech that unpacks the significance of the sign and specifically reveals uh, what the sign is telling us about the identity of Jesus. And this is one of those signs that has a discourse attached to it. In fact, both the signs we look at today, you have the sign and then you have the long speech that comes right after it. So that's kind of the flow um, that we're looking at. Now, in the discourse or the speech, Jesus makes some really big claims about himself, which we're going to look at. And so chapter 5 closes with Jesus submitting a list of witnesses that can testify to the truth of what he has just said. So that's kind of the flow. Let's go ahead and dig in. Chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> and I apologize, I'm kind of getting over a little cold. I feel, I feel fine, but there's some little ticklies in there. So hopefully I won't start coughing. We'll see. I haven't coughed at all, but you know when you start talking, it can kind of change. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, so here we have the setting. It's an unspecified Jewish festival. Now make sure you pay attention to these festival references because they mark each scene change in chapters 5 through 10, and I want to show that to you so you can see it as you're reading. So the next scene, feeding of the 5,000, bread of life, takes place during Passover. So look at chapter 6, verse 4. It says, now the Passover, and he even tells you, a Jewish festival was near. So Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for that. Um, then in chapter 7, Jesus is back in Jerusalem for another festival. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Or actually, verse 2. The Jewish festivals of shelters was near. All right? And then uh, towards the middle of chapter 10, verse 22, the scene changes again. Jesus is back in Jerusalem for the festival of dedication which is also known as Hanukkah. So we see that in chapter 10, verse 22. So chapters 5 through 10 can be broken down by Jewish festival. And John, do you think he wants us to pay attention to that? Yes. Do you think there's going to be some connections made between the festival and what Jesus says and does? Oh, yes, there is. And we'll, I'll be pointing those out to you as we go along. Now, this festival in chapter 5 is unnamed. Um, could have been the Festival of Pentecost. We don't know, all right? Um, also notice, the beginning of chapter 5, there is a pool, all right? So we have a little connection point with the previous chapter, don't we? 
Jesus' offer of living water is fresh on our minds from the woman at the well story. And now we have a guy who is sitting at a pool, all right? Um, In a very real sense, that's what these disabled people are waiting for. They're waiting for living water. They're waiting for the waters to be stirred up and grant them new life through the healing of their bodies. That was believed. What was believed? An angel would come and stir up the waters, and if you got in the water in time, you could be healed. So um, this is a very, very, very different image than the well in chapter 4, but in both cases, life-giving water is in view. So there's that connection point there. All right, let's pick up in verse (coughs) 5. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. That is a very long time. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. All right, so first question, who seeks out who? Jesus seeks out the man. That's right. And he asked him this question, do you want to get well? Kind of a puzzling question. Process that a little bit in the homework. Um, Now, his answer indicates that, I mean, yeah, I want to get well, right? But he couldn't make it to the pool in time. Thankfully, the giver of living water is right there in front of him. Jesus heals the man. It is time to throw a huge party and celebrate this whole new life and healing this man has received. Is that what happens? No, because look at the second half of verse 9. Now that day was what? (coughs) The Sabbath. All right, so we now have some conflict introduced to this particular story. So let's keep reading. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, yay, you're healed. No, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. All right, so this is quite a clear picture of the tragedy of legalism, right? You have a man who has experienced something miraculous. Uh, His entire life has been radically changed for the better, and all they can see is this law that has been broken. And some of you are laughing because you've been with people like this. Like, God is on the move, and they're like, oh, but there was a woman speaker, right? And you're like, really? That's all you got from that? That's all you took away? Okay, so we're we're doing that. Okay, right? So you guys have been, you you, you guys have, you guys guys know, you know, all right? So so they asked the man, um, you're not supposed to be carrying a mat. He's like, look, I'm just doing what I was told, And, and, you know, Jesus did not want to make a scene at the time. But he did want to make a personal connection with the man. Because Jesus is always, again, the sign points to something bigger. And he wanted to make sure this man understood the something bigger. 
He wanted to make a connection. He wanted to reveal a bit of, of who he was. And so, um, and so he seeks the man he seeks the man out, and we have this really tiny conversation. I'm sure there was much more to it. We have a tiny piece of it recorded for us in verse 14. It says, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, if that is the only verse we ever had about Jesus talking to a man who is disabled, we might think, okay, Jesus believes that disabled people are that way because of their sin. This is not the only verse that we have, and um, that would be absolutely in error to come up with that conclusion. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, in a few chapters, we're going to see a man who was born blind, and all the disciples were going to assume that he was born that way. You know, did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is going to say, nobody sinned. This is so that God might be glorified. So just be real careful with little one-liners like that. Always, we always need to keep them in, in both the context here in John, but then in the larger um, view of Scripture. Just give Job a read, and you can totally dispel any, any um, erroneous view that people are sick because it's their fault. Sometimes that's true, but that's certainly not the principle <laughs> that's laid out for us in Scripture. All right, so Jesus found him in the temple, said to him, um, don't sin anymore so that something worse does not happen. And the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. So John's going out of his way to make sure we know the problem here is that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He broke that law, all right? Now, let's look at Jesus's response in verse 17. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. Right, so this is Jesus' response. He basically says, um, my dad, whom you might know as God, he works sustaining all of life and the entire universe every Sabbath, and so do I. All right, so that's basically his answer. This does not go over well, as you might imagine. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was doing something even worse, right? He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, this verse, verse 18, is the key to interpreting the whole scene. There's a long history in the Bible of people making themselves equal with God. Let me throw out a few. Um, Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. Wasn't that what the serpent basically, you know, God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows that if you do, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that sounded, oh, defining good and evil on my terms sounds pretty great. Um, so, so they eat, you know, the rest of the story there. Pharaoh in Egypt are another example uh, of one who would make himself equal with God. In fact, Ezekiel 29 through 32 are all taken up with how Pharaoh and Egypt attempted to make themselves equal with God, um, if you want some light reading. <laughs> Assyria is another example, and we saw this when we studied Isaiah, right? So Isaiah chapter 10 deals a lot with how Assyria tried to make themselves equal with God, and God had to put them back in their place. And then, of course, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, again, we saw a lot of the Babylon trying to take the place of God 
in the, when we studied the book of Isaiah. So in every one of these cases, and there are so many more in, in the storyline of the Bible, in every one of these cases, it ends very badly because God will not tolerate any rivals. And you can try to make yourself equal with God, but it is not going to work out for you. So in the next several verses, Jesus is going to basically say, look, I am equal with the Father, but I didn't make myself that way. Let me tell you how and why I'm equal with the Father. Right, so let me, get, let me, let me expound to you my relationship with the Father because you're, you don't quite have it right. You don't quite have it right. All right? We had some pretty heavy-duty Trinitarian language going on in the prologue. Remember the threads that I had? And I told you the Trinity was a thread that John was going to weave throughout. Um, there were some big claims that the Word was God. We also saw the Word was with God. So he is God, but he's not God. You know, so you had, you had that starting way back in the very first chapter. And so John's pulling that thread through here again. So let's take, um, let's take a look at it. Verses 19 through 30 is a very important description of Jesus's unity with the Father. So let's take a look at that. I have a whole box for you where I have um, kind of outlined some of the significant things that Jesus says um, about his unity with the Father. All right, so verse 19, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So verse 19 tells us that there is an interdependence between the Father and the Son that leads to shared works. Right, so whatever the Father does, I do. Whatever I see the Father doing, I, I'm doing, all right? Uh, moving on to verse 20, the first part of verse 20. It says, the Father loves the Son. Now, most of us just kind of read past that. That's actually really, really huge, all right? So we have, the, they, they have a shared affection. And the reason that's huge, and this is something that we often don't think about, but before God ever created before God ever ruled the world, before anything else, what was God doing? They ever thought, what was God doing for all of that time before there was time? <laughs> he was a father loving a son. That's what he was doing. And uh, there's this book just rocked my world. I read it a couple years ago. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's by Michael Reeves. I love theology books that are thin because most of them are very big, and I don't ever get through them. This one was not hard to get through, but I want to read you a little paragraph he has here. He says, since God is before all things a father, and not primarily creator or ruler, so he was a father first, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does being a father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God, it is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as a father. That is who he is. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. And then he says this. 
It is only when we see that God rules his creation as a kind and loving father that we will be moved to delight in his providence. We might acknowledge that the rule of some heavenly policeman was just, but we can never take delight in his regime as we can delight in the tender care of a father. So when we read past something like that, the father loves the son. Uh, Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S. That's huge. That's huge Trinity stuff that matters. It matters so much. Um, I grew up assuming a lot about the Trinity. When I actually started to study the Trinity, it was like pretty life-changing, pretty, pretty amazing. That, that book's a good place to start. All right, let's look at the second half of verse 20. So the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So there we see they have shared knowledge. Verse 21, and just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. So there we see they have shared power, specifically power to raise the dead to life again, which is some kind of power, right? Verse 22, the father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So what we see there is they have a shared authority, specifically the authority to judge. And we're talking about like ultimate, final, like big judgment, which he describes, we're not going to read it, but he describes in verses 27 through 29, he's talking about, um, well, let's go ahead and read it. I I can't not read it. All right, uh, 27, and he has granted him, the son, the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. All right, I am disciplining myself to not talk to you about the significance of the son of man. I actually have it in my notes. Do not talk about the son of man. You do not have time. There is a Bible project video. If you go just to your Google search, the Bible project, son of man video. It is Woo, it's so good. It's so good, all right? So you need to go. I'm, we see that phrase a lot. Jesus, that's his favorite title for himself, son of man. We'll see it again. So maybe I'll get to actually talk to you about it again, but you need to watch that video. All right, so because he is the son of man, do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the son's voice, and come out. And those who have done good things to resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to resurrection of condemnation. So that is some authority right there. Calling people out of their graves and then issuing the final judgment. (laughs) The son and the father share that. In fact, the father has delegated it to the son would be more accurate. Verse 24. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So there we see there's a very clear way to avoid the resurrection of condemnation. You need to believe in the Son, all right? (coughs) Verse 25, truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, so he also has granted the Son to have life in himself. All right, so what is this life in himselfness that the Father has? Well, it's his self-existence. No one created him. There's not a beginning point to God. It's his eternal nature, which we saw in the prologue, also belongs to the Son. In the beginning was the Word. And all things were created through him. And so this this is another thread that John is is pulling through, the self-existence, the eternality of the Son. Just as God has life in himselfness, the Son has life in himselfness. Verse 30. I'm skipping. We already read that other part. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see there that the Father and the Son have a shared mission. We saw this back in chapter 4, verse 34, when he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You'll see that theme come up again and again and again as Jesus talks about why he's here. Now, I want you to look at the summary. It's teeny tiny. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to have to hold mine out here a little bit. All right. Summary at the bottom of that box in your handout. In stark contrast to those who have made themselves equal with God, Jesus does not forcefully seize status or exercise authority that is not rightfully his He exercises authority because God has granted it to him as the son. I also note there that ultimately, where is his authority and power going to lead him? The cross. The place of his ultimate coronation is the crucifixion. And I put that there because we need to, Keep our eye out for the fact that Jesus' means of attaining power and authority is radically different from the world's means. For Jesus and his followers, just us in this room, the way up is always down. It is always down. And in our, in our little subcultures, a lot of talk about leadership and headship and authority and all that stuff. And that's fine. Let's talk about it. But we better have Jesus in view when we talk about it. And we better have in view where his power and his authority and his attaining of status led him. It was not to be above people. It was to die for them, to serve them, to wash their feet. So let's talk about it. But let's talk about it in terms that Jesus has demonstrated for for us. And it, it, it's so different. It's, not, it's, it's so different than, than any concept of power and authority and hierarchy and headship and all of that that we, that we bring to the table with us. It's, it's so different and so beautiful. It's so beautiful what Jesus demonstrates for us. All right, so Jesus has made some really big claims about himself. Do you agree these are big claims? Like big, big claims, And so what he's going to do now, it makes a lot of sense that he would now list some witnesses that testify to the validity of what he has just said. 
because this is, this is quite a bomb he has dropped <laughs> about his identity and who he is. So he's going to call some witnesses to the stand. Let's, um, let's just read through these verses. I'm not going to expound on them much because I want to get to John 6, but we are going to make a list of the witnesses he calls and draw a few um, points from them. Verse 31, Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another one who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's witness number one, all right? John the Baptist, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. All right, so John, first one on the list. Verse 36, but I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. So all these signs, the miracles, the wonders that Jesus performs um, when he is, is on earth are also a witness to who he is. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. All right, so that's number three. So we have John the Baptist, we have Jesus' works, and now we have the Father. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. There's another witness, the scriptures. And what's he specifically talking about? The Old Testament. That, that was their scriptures. The Old Testament is a witness to, to these truths about Jesus. Verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. And this is why when you hear someone say, the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. Where do we get that? We literally get it from Jesus. That's what he said about the Bible. It's a unified story that points to him. It's ultimately all about him, and we're to read it that way. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, he's kind of highlighting there, you're totally missing it. You're, you're right here, and you're, you're missing it. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to your father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So our last witness called to the stand is Moses himself, their hero. <laughs> But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Two things are put on display in John chapter 5. Number one, the identity of Jesus as one with the Father. And the astonishing unbelief of the Jews. This whole conversation is like, 
all of these witnesses. Who were they sent to? The Jews. They were sent to Israel, right? They had every reason to be primed and ready and waiting to see Jesus for who he is, and yet they do not. And so again, we have echoes of the prologue, right? He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. John is pulling that thread through the narrative. He's showing us how this took place, all right? So that's, that's John chapter 5. Jesus' unity with the Father, got some really big deal Trinity stuff going on, and then you have the astonishing unbelief of of the, Jews, of the Jews, all right? Let's move on to the bread, to the feeding of the 5,000. Um, you can turn your sheet over. You'll see it's the same general pattern that we have in chapter five, all right? So it's gonna start off with the sign, and then it's gonna be followed by a really long discourse or speech, kind of unpacking the significance of the sign. Uh, we don't have a list of witnesses, but we do have a passage detailing the response of, um, of the people who hear the speech. All right, so let's dig in. You guys okay? Any questions about chapter five before we move on? All right, chapter six, verse one. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up a mountain, and he sat down there with his disciples. All right, so remember with, with John, what, what's going on on the surface is never just what's going on. So he's setting a stage. Jesus is crossing through waters. He's going up on a mountain, kind of away from everything else. So what John is conjuring up here is this wilderness motif that is going to continue to come into play. As, as he continues on, all right? Now, we have another Jewish festival. Which one is it? Verse four. The Passover. The Passover. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now, verse six clues us in. He asked this to test him. He knew what he was gonna do. Verse seven Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's like 200 days wages, worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, y'all must be friends. You got like, somebody is a group text? No. <laughs> You're both on the group text. Um, all right, so that wouldn't be enough for, okay, verse eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? It's like, have you ever, like you suggest something and it's coming out of your mouth and like, oh my gosh, that's so dumb. Why did I say that, right? I feel like that's what he experienced. Like, well, there's a guy, there's a boy here. And he's like, oh, but you know, that's not gonna work, all right? I do that, I do that all the time. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. So there was more than 5,000 because that's just the men. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Notice there's no talk about the fish being left over, and aren't we glad? Yes. I'm so glad there were not baskets full of fish. I would not have the same 
unpleasant feelings about this miracle of the birth. All right. So when they were, so they had as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And so they collected the leftovers and they filled how many baskets? 12 baskets. Is that significant? Of course it is. There's 12 disciples with pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. All right, we'll go ahead and stop there. John is, in the way he tells this, clearly putting an emphasis on the abundance of bread that was provided. Uh, it, it, it should remind us of what's going on. You remember the wedding at Cana where you have water being turned into wine. Not the cheap stuff at the bottom of the shelf that comes in the jug that your grandpa, you know, Arnold likes. You know, we're talking like the bougie stuff behind the lock and key. Like that's the kind of stuff. So water into fancy high-end wine. What he started with and what he ended with, big difference, right? And the same thing is happening here. You have a few loaves and fish that become a feast for this massive crowd, and there's so much left over, and there's all these clues that they had. I mean, they were just like full, full, right? Take a look at the people's response after all this abundance. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, to understand this, we've got to talk cultural context for a bit, all right? You and I live in a culture where many people take great pride in eliminating all bread from their diet. They post about it on Instagram. We live in a culture where people will actually put cheese and sauce on cauliflower and call it a pizza. That is so mean to pizza. It's so mean to pizza. And let me, let me just give you a word. It might be from the Lord. You can either be in ketosis or you can be happy. You cannot be both of those things. You cannot. You cannot be both of those things. So take that with, you know, do with that what you will. The point I'm making from all of those comments is that we can live without bread. No problem. Tons of people live without bread. If you're over 40, you eat one bite of bread and you gain 25 pounds, right? Like, what in the world? All right, so we live without bread. We live without bread all of the time. Um, I don't eat much bread, but every morning when I make my son's peanut butter and jelly, I literally, I can't believe I'm telling you this, I put the I put the bread to my nose and I take a big smell because I just love it. It's so wonderful. <laughs> I'm a weirdo. I am. All right. I love bread. I told you that. 
So bread is not a staple in our diet, all right? It is not a staple in our diet. Another cultural thing we need to consider is how easily we can get bread, all right? You just hop in your car, you head to the store where you choose from an entire aisle of bread. Have you ever sent your husband to the store to get bread? And you're like, just grab some bread. And he's like, oh my gosh, what bread? What bread? There's so much bread. And he's trying to remember the, what, the, what your bread looks like, right? Because there's so many options. So bread is, it is not essential to our diet, and it is very easy for us to get. And we need to understand that was not the case for the people in this crowd. They did not have Publix down the street with 5,000 varieties of bread. And bread was a main staple in their diet. In addition to that, it's estimated that approximately 85% of their income was spent on food. So if they can get this guy to keep giving this bread, they get an 85% raise. I mean, do you see what this means for these people? If we can get a king that'll provide this bread in this way, we're good. <laughs> we're real good. It is hard to conceive of anything more wonderful in their context than a leader who provides bread just like Jesus has done. And that's why they want to make him king by force. They want to take him and make him king. But Jesus won't have it. And it's not because he doesn't have all authority. You know, I really pondered, I read all kinds of commentaries, why it's like John just slips in the whole walking on the water thing. It's just kind of in a weird spot. Why is it there? And I don't know, there's all kinds of views on this. What I think, like they're, they're coming to take him by force to make him king, and Jesus is not going to have any of it. And I think what's happening is, is John wants us to know it's not because he doesn't have all authority. He's walking on the water, you guys. Walking on water. He's got the authority. His authority to be king is not the issue. The kind of king he's going to be and the way he's going to obtain the throne, that's the issue. And it is not going to come at the hands of greedy people who just want more bread and the 85% raise that comes along with it. It's not going to happen that way. Look at verse 22. It brings us to, um, well, actually, I'm not going to read that. 22 through 25, it's a bunch of this setting details that kind of brings us forward to the next day after the sign. The people find Jesus. They ask when he got there. In true Jesus style, he does not answer their question. <laughs> Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, I truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Tell us, what do we need to do? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God 
that you believe in the one whom he sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, we'll stop there. First thing Jesus does in his speech, his discourse, is to address their motive, which is material provision. They are still thinking in terms of actual bread and the 85% raise. And Jesus says, listen, don't work for stuff because stuff won't last. Work for something that lasts forever. And if there isn't a message that us modern Americans need to hear over and over and over. I love stuff, you guys. I love stuff. I am a true, full-blooded American. I love stuff. And Jesus is constantly saying, don't work for the stuff. Work for things that last. And of course, they're like, okay, you know, what do you want us to do? What's the work? And, and verse 29 is so important because Jesus articulates that the work required is believing, which is actually resting not on your own work, but in his work on your behalf. So essentially, Jesus says the work of God is to rest in the Son. The work is to rest. The work is no work. (laughs) It's faith. And then we have the request for a sign, (laughs) which, come on, people, What? Well, there was a common belief that when the Messiah came, he would renew the provision of manna. And so that's probably what they're playing off of. And, of course, I feel like this is what John has been wanting. He's been been wanting for that connection between the provision of the bread and the provision of the manna in the Old Testament to be made. If you want to jot down a scripture reference, uh, Exodus 16 is where the manna is described. Psalm 78, 24, and 25 is another reference, and then Nehemiah 9, 15. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about manna, verse 32. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. (gasps) What? Yes, he did. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. Here it is, verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Mm. So what he's saying is God has something way better than manna, and it's me, right? That's what he's saying to them. And what makes Jesus better than manna, what makes Jesus better than stuff, what makes Jesus better than full bellies and an 85% raise is that he truly satisfies. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. So he's moved from the realm of physical provision to the realm of spiritual provision. 
Not that he doesn't care about physical needs. He does care about physical needs. But he's going after the deeper need. And if you read Exodus 16, the main feature of the manna, what stands out is the repetition. It had to be collected every single morning except the Sabbath for the entire time they wandered in the wilderness over and over and over and over and over again. If you tried to stock up, it would rot that went on for 40 years. <laughs> and there were many times in those years of wandering that the people grumbled about this. They got sick of the manna. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in chapter 6, there's a few references to grumbling. I think John's connecting those dots together. <laughs> I think he is. Verse 41. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? He's like, we know his parents. He's from Nazareth, you guys, right? That's kind of their their response. And Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. That's Isaiah. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So we see there that not only is the bread connected to manna in the Old Testament, it's also connected to the word of God. And being taught by God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he is the true bread. He fulfills the whole being taught by God thing too. You are taught by God as you are taught by Jesus. Look at verse 47. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone, anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right, Jesus, you were doing great until that. (laughs) My flesh. So he has clearly stated that he is the true bread. Now he's about to unpack what that means for the people who would come to him for eternal life. There's a shift from talking about bread to talking about flesh. Now eating bread is a lovely image. I'm a bread sniffer. I like thinking about eating bread. Eating flesh, not so much, right? Not so much at all. Look at verse 52. At this, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give him his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, okay, so now blood's a part of it, okay, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day because my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live Because of the Father, so the one who loved this image so much feeds on me, feeds on Jesus. 
will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats from this bread will live forever. <laughs> now, notice, and you've got to love Jesus. He doesn't do anything to diffuse the situation. He actually makes it worse by adding the whole blood thing metaphor in, in there. And for the original hearers of this discourse, remember the Last Supper hadn't happened yet, right? The crucifixion hadn't happened yet, right? This had to have sounded a lot like cannibalism. <laughs> this is weird. But for John and the readers of his gospel and for us, what, what does this language sound like? It sounds like the Lord's Supper, right? It, 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 and the Lord's Supper reminds us of, of the cross, right? And so in this one metaphor of bread, Jesus has managed to span the entire story of redemption from Exodus to the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Like he's covered the whole thing. It's all there. I have a quote on your listening guide from um, Marianne May Thompson, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, various images of the bread are layered over each other. That's why you look at commentaries, and they're trying to, like, nail down what is the significance of the bread. It's a whole bunch of things. It's not just one thing. So they're layered over each other to bring out the significance of Jesus as the true bread of life. He's the bread that fed the 5,000. Manna given the Israelites in the wilderness, the figurative bread of Torah, God's word and wisdom, the bread of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and Jesus himself. Together, these various images of bread, of feeding and provision show that what God gave to Israel, he now gives through Jesus, and what Jesus gave the hungry, he still gives as the living one. That what Jesus gave during his early life, he gave also in his death. And that what he was in creation of the world, he is now and will be on the last day. No matter which aspect of God's work in the world or of Jesus's ministry in person is taken to account, or whether it's creation or eschatology or the end times is in view, the same truth shines forth. In him was life, and this life was the light for all people. I love that because she captures the grandeur of this metaphor. It is grand. It is big. It's beautiful. He's bringing together so many things well, the whole eating his flesh and drinking his blood thing turns a lot of would-be followers off. And verse 66 says, from that moment, many of his disciples, not talking about the 12, there were other followers of Jesus, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And listen, this is so important, so, so important. Jesus was never, ever, not one time, concerned with building a crowd. His mission was to build a church. And it is really, really easy for us to forget that there is a big difference between those two things. 
There's a lot of big auditoriums full of people on Sunday mornings who love the material provision they've been told that Jesus is going to give them. They love how the service makes them feel. They love the, um, the image being a churchgoer. They don't love Jesus. That is not a church. That is a crowd. Might as well be a Taylor Swift concert. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It is highly unlikely that any of us will make it through life without watching someone we thought was a true follower of Jesus turn their backs and walk away. I know I have. And there is so much encouragement to be found in Peter's words here. Where else would we go? See, Peter was starting to understand who Jesus is. And he's like, there's just no, I mean, where, where am I going to go? I could turn away. Where am I going to go? You know, it's, if, if you're on social media, you're kind of following trends. Deconstructing your faith is a big, tr- a big trend. It's kind of trendy right now. And um, there are a lot of things that we've been told are biblical that are actually just cultural a lot of things. And those things need to be deconstructed. Like I'm talking big old sledgehammer, bulldozer, moving on in, um, get that stuff out of the way. I've been doing a lot of that the last couple of years. The she study came out of some of that process in my own life. But who Jesus is, as revealed in the scriptures, is who Jesus is. And what Jesus demands is what Jesus demands. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, feed on me. (laughs) And you either stay or you go. You either stay or you go, but coming up with your own more accommodating version of Jesus um, and who he is and what he demands is not an option. There's not a third group that's like, you know what? We like some of what you are, but we don't like all of what you are. So we're going to do our own thing over here. We're going to make our own little thing. No, you stay or you go. You stay or you go. Either he has the words of life or he does not have the words of life and you need to go somewhere else, right? And, and that, the fact there's two, there's two options is going to become more and more clear as we continue in the Gospels. All right? Okay, we're out of time.